welcome to another episode of the 10 Frame Podcast for Emerging Artists. My name is Kelly Thompson, and you can find me at kellythompsonart.com or on Instagram at kellykthompsonart. Hey, I'm Kevin Kirkwood, and you can find me at kevinwillpaint.com or my Instagram handle is kevinwillpaint. 10 Frame Now has a patrons page on our website where anyone can contribute to the podcast to help us cover associated costs so we can continue to share our conversations from the artistic community with you. The website is the10frame.podbean.com. Thank you in advance. Um, not a lot of tubing. I've only been tubing like once or twice in the sound. That was actually a crazy experience. Um, the most recent time I did it, uh, my friend Fred had a boat. And we went out in the late afternoon and, you know, didn't pull back into the harbor until the sun had already gone down. Yeah. And that was just awesome. The water was like glass and having the sun reflect off of it through the sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we went back into the harbor, I was you know, facing ahead. And when I turned back to look at the stern, I saw in the water all this bioluminescence coming up. Um, and I was like, whoa, I've never seen that before. Yeah. But it was weird because... The longer I looked at it, it's like it disappeared right in front of me. It was one of those things that you really saw better in your periphery, wow. which is like the, the most weird way to um, to observe something. Um, and it made me appreciate it a lot more. The fact that I couldn't look directly at it, yeah. you know, it was like Orpheus or whatever. Did you have to move the water? So yeah, I would, I, would, I would put my hands in the water too. Because I saw it as we were towing the, the tube and you could see it as the line was in the water, just mm-hmm. a little bit of agitation. And I would dip my hand in the water too. And it was like these, these green and blue stars that were moving through my fingers. Um... And I like wanted to hold them and like bring them back into the boat with me, but I know I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've only experienced that in Puerto Rico. I think on the east side of the island there's these bays or I don't even know what they are. Interior bodies of water. Um and they they weren't that visible when we were there, so they had to bring tarps out and they would cover your boat. Mm the guides would cover your boat and then you could just move the water. Maybe the so, moon was too bright or there was something variable, one variable that was not allowing us to visit yeah. and see them. But I love how rare it is too. It was amazing. Yeah. It was very interesting. So, I um, actually wrote a poem about that. Do you want to hear it? Heck yeah. All right, sweet. Hold on one sec. It wasn't really about it, but it was, I was thinking about that moment um, when I was thinking about some other things mm-hmm. and it just kind of um, thematically made sense. Um, so it's called uh, Don't Stomp on My Milkweed Come Catch fleeting stars in your open hands With me in the slow wake Through the brackish bay But no, they're not for me to keep Nor you They're hardly ours to see at all Maybe we should shut our eyes And merely listen to the periphery Because the longer we stare The more they disappear She told me nothing is fully felt until it is lost, because then the only way to get it back is to desperately obsess over the few fragmented artifacts that remain in memory. There they are treasured, and they decay, and it's the act of trying to preserve a dying thing that makes it feel so close, because it only grows smaller and simpler, and there is less today than there was before, and only a fraction remains from its once unfathomably complex original. 
you can hold it now. You can hold it fully in your closed hand. And the longer you do, it will soften and round until it shrinks into a gravel and then dust and the wind and the currents and the critters will return it to where it came from. For some reason, I'm thinking it ties into your thesis show. Somehow. It does. Okay. Yeah. I was, you know, really thinking about including it mm-hmm. in it. Um, just doing a very personal type of soundscape, just a table with a set of headphones and mm-hmm. a little MP3 player that would just play that on a loop. And I still might. Um, yeah. But I was thinking maybe I'll write something else, a different type of poem, different soundscape um, to go in there. But So do you know. write po- is poetry part of your practice? Yeah, I think writing always has been. Um, like, English has always been my best subject in school. And I... Th- always felt that writing was the best way to express myself and it's weird because I never really connected with film as a way to express myself you know film was always um, a different way of telling a story or understanding things but I think if I want to make myself the most clear it's through words Um, so I think writing poetry has informed my filmmaking yeah um and i think that uh yeah the the mindset behind poetry is just finding unusual connections between things and drawing conclusions and creating meaning right so yeah i think it's made things um more fun for me to not just do that through words, but do that through words and images. Um, and audibly too, just you hearing your voice. Like if you close your eyes and listening to your voice, it was very calming. And what you were saying was very, um, visual and I don't know, kind of intimate and vulnerable that you were doing that. And I, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. No, I, I, um, I think I wrote that after I found this artist um, named Julian Klintzowitz. I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly. I think I am. Um, but he's a really interesting guy, kind of an artistic enigma, where he will deal in every kind of medium. But I found him on Spotify okay. because he has this... It's not a song. I want to say it's like a... Uh, what was the word that I used to describe it? It was like a... Um, a poemscape, you know, where he reads this, this poem that he wrote, um, called pure Michigan, this song, or I guess, you know, the title track is called pure Michigan. And then the, the background soundscape is all these fun little audio textures, but also a kind of a grand orchestral set with it too. Um, and it is so visual and it paints, a beautiful picture of being a kid growing up in the Midwest. And that's not something I can relate to, but I still felt like I knew exactly what he was talking about. And it reminded me of childhood memories, you know, waiting out the rain inside playing monopoly and, um, with my friends, my family and going out and, you know, collecting bugs and shells on the beach and, um, you know, building forts in the woods. I, just the thing that he was able to create with that, I was gobsmacked by. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to create something similar. I thought, you know, this is something I've never experienced before from an artist. Um, and it's, it is 
that kind of poetry that I'm chasing of creating a very specific feeling um, and expressing myself in a very accurate way mm-hmm. in a very visual way too. Is it difficult to be that vulnerable or to be that, I think it's kind of intimate. I, I think is the word that I keep landing on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sincere, definitely. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I try to be authentic with a lot of things. And I think that's authentic. why, I think that's why I'm, I'm drawn to, uh, to documentary as my medium too, because I just, it's, it's so hard to create a convincing fiction, um, especially with film. I mean, you know, no, uh, no bad words toward my classmates who made fiction films, but it's just, for me, I think you can create something that a lot of people, um, can become very empathetic to through documentary because both forms, you know, fiction, nonfiction, they're different ways of telling stories. They're actually opposite ways of telling stories. I forget who told me this, but once they put it in this frame of reference, I was like, Oh my God, it makes so much sense. Um, basically when you tell a documentary story, nonfiction story, you are taking the totality of reality and distilling it, taking these pieces and and putting them together, almost like a magnet fridge poem, you know, Mm -hmm. taking the things that already exist and arranging them in a certain way to create a certain stance, a universal truth that you want to say about the world. And for other, and for other people's to view it too, right? There's the flip side of that. Like it's a very poetic way of telling a story. Um, because that's how I think of poetry is taking these things and putting them together to create a meaning, right? And then the reverse of that is fiction storytelling, where you're creating these little moments of fictions um, and you're bringing them all together until they become this perceived reality. You know, you're creating reality out of what's artificial. So it's really the, just the reverse process. And it's so hard to do that, to cover every base and to make sure that you are suspending every ounce of disbelief doing that. Um, and then on top of that, you still have to tell a good story. <laughs> so with documentary, the work of making it believable is done for you. Everyone already understands that documentaries are some kind of reflection of reality. And then all you have to do, all you have to focus on is just tell a good story. So half the work is done for you. And that's the part that, you know, is the highest barrier for me when I'm watching other content. Or not content. I actually hate the word content. Art. I meant to say art. <laughs> How do you get people to be comfortable with a camera in their face and probably a microphone? And you probably internally you have to center yourself and try to find what's important to that person to make them feel comfortable and vulnerable and share their story, right? Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. I mean, the question you're asking is really like, how do you empathize with somebody? How do you get someone to trust you? Um, and it's, it's not easy. I don't fully know. I mean, if I did, um, I, I feel like my trajectory would be just laid out for me and very easy to accomplish. But I think that's the biggest thing that I'll be learning my entire career is how do you get someone to trust you in a very authentic way, you know? Um, because I could be a con man and get you to trust me and then totally, you know, just make that expectation of trust collapse. Um, so I really need to trust, get someone to trust me in a very authentic way, in a very um, real way. And I think the way to do that is to just listen. Um, 
I think when you give someone a platform to talk about themselves and to open that up, it actually makes them trust the listener a lot. Um, it's this weird psychological phenomenon where you want someone to like you, let them just talk about themselves. <laughs> so being a documentary filmmaker, my job is to listen to people. So by doing the job, I'm creating trust because I'm just listening. Um, and once you've let them talk enough, you know, they're going to peel back the layers until they get to the more, more important stuff, the things we all want to know, right? The big questions. Um, what are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? Um, what do you want to do? What are you doing? Because those questions, they can have very simple answers. But if you ask someone, what are you doing? They have to think about what are they doing? All these little decisions that they make, the decisions that are just automatic that they don't fully think about. Um, yeah, how to get someone to reflect with how they're being present. Mm -hmm. Can you answer any of those questions that you posed? I don't think we've peeled back enough layers gotcha. yet. <laughs> Let me keep talking, maybe we'll get there. Um. Let's talk about your thesis then. Let's yeah. Let's talk about the, um, the installation of the film. Because they're kind so of connected. Let's start with the first step. You, you lead that. I mean, what's... Sure, yeah. So, let's see. I don't know where this... This... Um, the whole mission kind of came from. But the themes of my work with my film and my installation are about memory and the fear of forgetting um, my film will you remember me is a short documentary about this nurse very compassionate nurse um, who works at a nursing home in Massachusetts and one day she goes into work and notices that one of her patients who has Alzheimer's is not doing very well something's different what's the nurse's name her name is Colleen um, so and then the patient, her name is Lucille. So Colleen notices that Lucille is not singing. Lucille was an opera singer her entire life. And she would sit there in the home and just sing opera for people. And it was very pleasant. Everyone loved it. But she shows up and now she's not singing. And she's kind of in a bit of a daze. And she's 100 years old. And so Colleen notices all these she's been a nurse for 45 years she's pretty good at picking up the clues and she goes to the phone she calls her daughter and says hey you should probably come in and see your mom i don't think she has much time left i'm noticing these changes she's not singing that's a big red flag and the one song that i did hear her sing it's very sad and she's singing to her mother mm -hmm. you should probably come in and she can't come in her daughter can't come and visit her so in the meantime Colleen has to do her best to bring this woman peace because she's really agitated. Right. And it's tough for Colleen to help her because Lucille has Alzheimer's and she can't fully communicate the things that she's dealing with. And so, of course, Lucille can't talk about the things that she's dealing with because she has Alzheimer's herself and doesn't know why she's having the feelings that she's feeling. And so Colleen tries everything. Um, to bring her peace. Do you want me to spoil it? No. Okay. A yes, but no. All right. <laughs> I'll finish it off by saying that this journey that 
Colleen puts herself through forces her to confront um, her own fears about loss. Mm -hmm. And it also forces her to balance the contradictions of her job as a nurse. What does it mean to give care? Uh, and what does it mean to give treatment? And um, it's a, I, I, if you can't already tell, it's a very emotional, yeah. a heart-wrenching story. Um, I was just talking to a friend a couple of days ago about she, she went to a children's hospital where the kids were um, undergoing treatment for cancer. Mm. And it was the first time that she went there and it really impacted her. And I just said to her, you know, like, just be careful, you know, she's the perfect person to be doing that, but just take care of yourself because there's different outcomes for each of the patients. And she got offended of it by, at first, but I was just trying to, you know, protect, I guess. But I don't know if that's kind of what you're speaking to a little bit, like Colleen was having struggles maybe with what... Well, yeah, it's difficult for her because everyone who lives in that wing, the memory care wing of this place, everyone's going to die. Mm -hmm. And she knows that. And she's been doing it since she was 16. She's been working in a nursing home since she was 16. And she knows that's going to be the end of, of everyone's story there. So her, her, her unique approach is to just treat everyone according to their emotional needs. Because as your brain deteriorates from dementia, um, and it's not just Alzheimer's, there's people with you know bluey bodies, vascular dementia, um, frontal temporal. Um, what happens is, with Alzheimer's specifically, um, your, your brain cells, they die and they don't get replenished. You know your body's full of cells that will always be recycling, what, like every 10 years we're pulling new people, right? Um, but when you have Alzheimer's, it's a long process. It can take like 15 years before you eventually succumb. And your brain weighs about three pounds. A healthy brain weighs three pounds. Um, when people die of Alzheimer's, it's about a pound, pound and a half. Oh, I didn't know You that. can literally see the empty spaces between the grooves of your brain. And so you are literally losing yourself, mm -hmm. your identity, um, your memories, the things that inform who you are they go away um and so she's very aware of this this has been her job this has been her vocation um she's a lifelong caretaker and now this detail i'm about to share is not part of the documentary because well a couple of reasons but um so if anyone's listening and is a fan of the documentary they can hear some of this behind the scenes content mm -hmm. um but she goes home every day um to care for my cousin. Uh, so that was going to, I was going to ask you, why are you making this film? So she's my aunt. That's yeah. I, I did I not say that? <laughs> I don't, you might've done, but I didn't know if we peeled the layer of the no. onion off and I didn't <laughs> want to be invasive, but I wanted, I was like, well, the, the obvious question is why are you making it? So yeah, I, I think she's a family member that I really respect and one that I'm very curious about too, mm -hmm. because she goes home and takes care of my cousin, who's late 30s, almost 40. Um, and he still lives at home because he has schizophrenia. Okay. So he spends most of his time in his room. Um, 
doesn't really do well around people you know his own um, imagination gets the best of him when it comes to that right so I did want it to be a part of the project because I think it's so interesting that she's a full-time caretaker even when she's off the clock and she goes home she's still being a caretaker my second question would be how does she take care of herself Mm. so that's what we go to explore in the film one of the questions that we set out to to answer was basically why does she work here you know why does she put herself through this i mean there's so much more backstory to she worked at this place for a while she loved it It was a five-star facility and then um she she left to go get some certifications do some nurse management and things and when she was gone the place was uh purchased by some independent um, because it's privately owned um some people from new york this is their only nursing home not in new york and they don't give a shit about this place. Right. It's Can just I money. curse on this thing? Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay, yeah. good. It's just money. It is just money. <clears throat> and because I, it was explained to me, but I don't fully know, however Medicaid works in the state of Massachusetts, it can be mm-hmm. very lucrative. Right. So, um, yeah, they took every line item on that budget and slashed it. I mean, when she worked there, they had really high quality, true Greek yogurt because it has, has these proteins in it that will help you fight infections and things. And when people, you know, their immune systems are real low, it's really important to have that. When the new people came in, they were going through everything. They saw yogurt. Why is yogurt $6? We're going to make it 50 cents. And they did like bright green tricks yogurt instead, which is pure sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just one example. Everyone who was full-time got dropped down to part-time. Mm-hmm. Um, activities were slashed. Um, so when she heard all about these, these changes and how awful it was, what did she do? She went back. She went to work there because those are the people who needed her the most. And I think that says so much about her um, as a person. 100%. I mean, she cares through yeah. and through, it sounds. Yeah. And, and so, was she able to make changes by coming back? Only what she could are we do. Share, are we just blowing this whole plot up? Well, okay? no, because this, this stuff is not actually oh, part gotcha. of the document. I, I mean, there was an angle that we were thinking about from the beginning, but we decided that, you know, documentaries aren't about places or things. They're about people. Right. So that's the story that we took it. This is all just backstory. This is like, <laughs> this is months of me wrestling with what is this story that we're shooting. Yeah. Um, How long did that take? What's the process of this whole thing? So... Um, it's a, it's a idea that I've been sitting on for a long time because, you know, I, every time I see her, I'm like, Oh, like, what's your work? Like, I want to come observe it. I think it's so interesting. And I think there's always a little bit of curiosity tied to the fear of memory the fear of forgetting. Right. Um, so I've always been really intrigued by what she does. And then, um, for some reason, there's a lot of like medical motifs that come up in my work, which is weird because I hate the doctor. Yeah. (laughs) I, my biggest fear is surgery. You have this film, it's a documentary, it's a short film, mm-hmm. and it's going to be shown um, this week, May 31st, I think. Uh, the 1st, yeah, on the Thursday, first. Um, June 1st, um, in the 6.30 to 9.30 block, um, for free. You don't need tickets, just show up. And right also, um, people want to check your, your work out, where do they find it? Um, my website is montamat.co, so M-O-N-T-A-M-A-T.co.com. Um, and there you can see some of our past work. You can see all of the crew and our beautiful little headshots. Um, Where did you get the name? So the name comes from my um, my grandmother's maiden name. So 
she only had daughters, her brother never married, and their cousins were all girls. So that's the end of the Montemat family right. name. Yeah. And I figured instead of letting it die, I'll rescue it and turn it into something immortal and positive. Sweet. Yeah. And then you're also doing an installation on Broughton Street. Um, yeah. That's going to be 31st? That'll that be one? yeah. That'll be the thirty first through the fourth um, at night, eight thirty to ten thirty. What does that consist of? So it's called metabolizing memory, and it's um, been this this project that I've kind of looked at kind of distantly. It's part of my independent study for my last quarter here at SCAD, um, and it's I've I've tried to take everything I've learned from being an art school. I was going to say being a student of art, but I think I'll always be a student of art, but being a student at art school. Um, I really wanted to challenge myself to just create something where I wasn't kind of controlled by fear um, and just allow myself to make mistakes. And I remember last summer I was taking a, a class and my professor, um, you know, she's just reaming on me. She's like, what, what kind of art do you do for yourself? Will?" and I'm like, Oh shit. Like, I don't think I do any art for myself. Like I'm a filmmaker the things that I make take months to make and then they're done and I'm exhausted and I take some time and do another thing. Right. Right. And it was this weird realization where it's like, can you really call yourself an artist? Um, if you only create art like every six months and for other people, for other people. Yeah. Right. So I had to do a lot of, you know, um, introspection and think, who am I making this for? Am I making it for myself or for other people? Am I making it, to understand myself or to understand the world. What's the purpose behind all this? And what have I been neglecting for my own creative needs? You know, how have I been hamstringing myself? And I realized that I just was terrified of making mistakes. And I didn't really know why. So I just tried to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I realized that... Uh, what are some of those mistakes? So... I've always tried to avoid things where I knew that mistakes would happen. And that's definitely like 2d illustration and, and drawing anything where it's like, you got to draw or paint something. I'm like, nah, I'm not good at it. I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it. I took a drawing class here cause I had to. And the whole time I was like, this isn't my thing, you know, and, and complained and looking back, like I, I really wish I'd taken it seriously and actually tried to improve. But I just thought that drawing was something that, was an innate talent, wasn't a skill that you could actually learn like anything else. So this, you know, now delayed a couple of years coming to this realization, is it too late? Um, I left that class with my professor after she was like, you need to start doing stuff for yourself. And I walked to the art supply store and I got a nice micron pen. Mm -hmm. And I was like, with this pen, I will make so many mistakes. And so I found this old notebook in my house that I hadn't touched and I just like tried to draw something and it was ass. Oh, it was so bad. And I was like, you know what? This is going to be better if I'm not the only one making mistakes. So I, I took that book to the bar that night and I took it to coffee shops and restaurants. Anywhere I was with friends, I had that and that pen and I would pass it around and just say, someone write in this, please. Just, you know, go ahead and, and make your own mistakes so that we can all make mistakes together. Yeah. Do you and enjoy the process of drawing? What, what, what about that do you draw, you know, is intriguing to you? I think it's, it's something that I'm resistant to because 
Do you want to do it because you believe you're not good at it? Is yeah. It? Like I'm a very visual person. And so I can, I can picture things really well. Um, like very, very vividly. So when I sit down to translate that into something on the page and it doesn't, like it's always going to exist better in my head. So why would I even make something that's worse? Like it just doesn't make sense to me like that. Um, but then I had to think about drawing in a just totally different way where it's, it's not about creating what you see. It's about where you sat and what you saw. It's, it's permission to look at things. It's permission to observe and to wander around and so I keep saying this to some of my friends lately because um, I hang out with a bunch of painters and artists like we all do but um, we get tied up on our ability to make something good or and it's just it's a dead end street so you have to make it for yourselves and I have said it a couple of times and it might be redundant and that's okay but I say how, you know, how you make a portrait painting, you grab a canvas or a substrate, you grab a paintbrush and some paint and you paint a portrait. It's that easy, you know, and whatever, uh, trust and allow yourself to have the mistake, you know, it's probably going to be amazing, but just do it for yourself make it, it's okay if it sucks, it's all right. You made a painting of a portrait, you know? Yeah, but also I think the, the idea of what's good and what's bad, I mean, that's so subjective. To me, the most um, interesting thing about art in general is it's what you see, but it's filtered through you. It's through your lens. Um, if you're trying to be hyper-realistic and it doesn't match your expectation of what it should be, then you know that's one thing. But to say something's bad because it doesn't look exactly like what you're looking at, you know, to me that's just all in the interpretation. You know, the interesting thing is what it looks like filtered through you. That's what makes it interesting. Definitely. And I think there's, I've carried this kind of sophomoric hesitation toward marking up a page because if I make one mistake on that page, they all things ruined. And I really think of it in that immediate sense. And I don't really think about the opportunity of this is just one mark. This is just one page. This is just one book of many. And if you make enough mistakes, it's going to create like a unique fingerprint for you. You're the one that made those mistakes and that's, that's fine. Like that's good. That's your identity. So I have turned that, you know, project into this mini art series where now I have two books that are full of my mistakes and other people's mistakes. I call it the sketchbook guest book and it's kind of guest book, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The sketchbook guest book. Right on. Yeah. And you say you have other people write stuff in it and do other things so yeah are they the guests they are the guests guests yeah i mean there's there's more of other people than there is of me but out of everyone i think you know i have the majority even though it's probably like 15 percent of the drawings or whatever is Um, it something you would publish or no no but i'll have it on display as part of my installation okay um just for people to look at because it does speak to the idea of documenting things and how you kind of preserve memories and how memories decay. And I was really intentional to, you know, take this book where I said, go ahead, draw in it. The only rule is you can't mess with what someone else has already done. Everything else, you know, do whatever you want. And people kind of kept themselves in a box. They took a page, just a page, you know, conceivably they could rip up a page and that would be considered art too. And that'd be fine. Um, But everyone kind of, you know, treated it like, 
they were allocated this little slice of something great. Um, and uh, I had something else to say, but I forget. <laughs> I have something. So you mentioned like maybe six months ago or so you were trying to address things that were fearing, like you were, you feared. Mm -hmm. Was that, that's, that's what the book was, right? Or was it other things or no? Yeah. I mean, that was definitely like the beginning of it. And once I got comfortable or I, I hesitate to say that cause I don't even think I'm still comfortable yet, yeah. but the possibility of becoming comfortable, making mistakes, like I'm, I've definitely improved. Um, and this installation is that with a different medium, it's, it's making video art, um, that might not be perfect. Um, but that's not the point, you know, the point is to just have created something. Um, and for some reason that's been a hesitation is creating something that doesn't have some, some bigger purpose or that is good. Like, yeah. The idea of creating art for myself and no one else. Cool. Yeah. But there's been, of course, a healthy amount of imposter syndrome with every time I sit down and make something and I throw my laptop across the room and yeah. I'm like, this is bad. Yeah. I think you share that with most artists. Yeah. I don't think I'm unique. You're de <laughs> no, definitely not. And even well-established artists come up with the same um, issues, you know, and it's also to me, I, personally, I, I went through that also. I'm still going through that, but um, it's, it's trying to figure out what process works best for you in order to kind of overcome that. Yeah. And it was, I, w I read this great book during um, like my first quarter of my senior year for the development phase of my documentary. My professor made us read a book called Start Ugly. I forget the name of the author, but it's really good. It's you know about how to guide your creative spirit. Um, and it was this weird thing when I was reading it, I was like, this is really good, but then I was having even more doubts because I was like, am I just teaching myself how to be creative in an inauthentic way, or am I actually trying to, you know, remove the dirt around the pearl of creativity and allow it to exist? Like, which is it? Am I creating something or am I just allowing the thing that's already there? Which is it? To, I don't know. Yeah. And again, for, for a while, I, it felt like I was just trying to teach creativity, which felt so antithetical. Um, and I'm still figuring that out. Um, there was another, um, person, I, it wasn't a book, but it was a, um, like someone on Instagram, a creative guru type, but her approach was really different where for other people. And I think in, in the book, start ugly, they're like, when you meet resistance, like, you know, you got to go through it. Like, you know, just, just the only way to start is to just start and you got to start ugly and you got to do it over and over and over again until the ugly becomes something that you can be proud of. But this guru on Instagram took it the complete opposite way. She's like, for a lot of us, that's not a helpful way to think. What if you thought of your creative spirit as an intimacy, something that actually wants to dance with you as much as you want to dance with it? It's a muse. Yeah, exactly. So it's something that can kind of coexist. I mean, I brought my notebook with me because I wrote down a bunch of notes when she was saying, that. I'll see if there's anything good in here that's, that's worth sharing. Um, yeah, bunch of notes. Wow. Um, yeah, she says, um, what you want to create wants to be created through you specifically, even more than you want to create through it. 
listen to it, walk with it, learn from it. Did you read Rick Rubin's book? I did not. Do you have it, or are you aware of it? I'll let you borrow my copy. It's right. a quick read. All right. He talks... You know Rick Rubin? I don't think so. All right. I won't repeat it again, because I've talked to it a couple of times on <laughs> okay. here. But it, it's... If you're in tune with that, you're going to love this book. Right. Read, yeah. You want some more? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. What if creativity and intimacy can both be measured by how present we are? Being so in love with the process that the production becomes obsolete. Aligning with the process means being present. Creativity is an intimacy with the world. What gets in your way? Judgment, shame, rejection. How much of yourself is allowed to show up? Yeah. What if your creative spirit is as in love with you as you are with it? What if it adores you? What if it desperately wants to dance with you? What if you are never alone when you're creating? Because you aren't. You're in constant conversation with it. You're in an ongoing intimacy with it. How much more intimacy is available with yourself if you believe that your creative spirit loves you? That you're not just having to sit with yourself and perform? What allows you to feel safe to show up for your creative power? Are you allowing tension to exist? Let the tension beg for a reaction. Opt for participation with something over domination over something. Sweet. Yeah. Do you, did that plant the seed in you that you now feel like when you create, there's this other thing with you? It's never that easy, you know? Like, I wrote this down. I know it. I'm the one who put that mark on the page, and yet there are some, still some days where I open up this book, and I'm just like, I can't draw. Like, nothing's coming to me today. Yeah, but it's it's there, it's right? There. So every once in a while, it's tapping you on, sh- on the shoulder saying... Well, it's just a matter of how um, open I am to always remembering that. Yeah, because just because it's there doesn't mean that it's always right there, too, in the front of my mind. I, I want to bring up... I want to shift gears real quick. Mm-hmm. And you were talking... We were talking about previously about there's a parallel between having a podcast and doing a documentary and you touched on there's like four things. Oh yeah. The the gauntlet. This is, if you think you have an idea for something, this will tell you if you actually have a viable idea that can turn into something good. I forget who told me this and I may have modified it and made it my own over the years. But the first question is, um, what story is it that you want to tell? Because there's a lot of stories out there in the world. So why are you choosing this one? Right. And why you? Why are you the best one to tell the story? Because maybe there's someone from a background that's more closely linked to it, and they could just do a better job telling the story than you could. So you really have to ask yourself, am I the best one to tell it? And then the third question, why now? Is this something that should have been told five years ago? Or is it something that I would be better suited to tell 15 years from now? You know, Is, is now the really the best time to get involved with something like this? And then the fourth one is one that people will be um they'll try to create a fake answer for if they really want it to be a certain way it's what medium does this idea require because as a filmmaker a lot of films suck because people have ideas that would just be better as books or podcasts or songs or paintings or things that are more abstract but because they think of themselves as filmmakers they think that every idea they have has to be a film and so you really have to consider what medium, what, what, what qualities do certain media have um, that will help 
optimize the story you're trying to tell. So for film specifically, that means something that is time-based, that is audio and video. You know, it's got to be those three things. If it's time-based and just audio, boom, you have yourself a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. If it's time-based and video, that could be like a slideshow of pictures. It doesn't have to be a film. There's a reason why there's that that other um, piece to it. And maybe you just have something that is purely just images. And there you have, you know, a photo series Um, or something that, you know, could be a song. Like you really just have to think about how am I optimizing the story? How am I serving the story to the way it needs to be told. I think also, I mean, that's, that's great advice, but I also think it's a slippery slope because there, you can also turn that around and you're having a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be making something. Um, so I think that's, it's good to have kind of like a little checklist to run through your head because there are things, and I think film is a perfect example of what shouldn't be a film, because everyone's seen that film that's like, oh my God, this is yeah. you know, unwatchable, or and, and, and I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of reasons why, but probably in that list you just gave, there, there's probably, you know, they probably could have checked off a couple of those and not made it, but um, I think there's also um, areas where there, there's a lot of gray areas there too, where you could be like, well, I sh-, you know, there's a reason why I shouldn't be making this, but maybe that's just the reason why you should. Yeah, but maybe it's not always a deterrent to never do this. It could be something that's like do it a different time, or maybe you can still be involved, but you're not the director of it. You know, it's like maybe you have this idea, you can write that script and have someone else bring it to life. Or maybe just being a producer on it, or that's the story you want to shoot, but not the story for the script you should write. You know, it's like, where do you fall into the creation of this thing. If you really think that you want to be involved, but you know you're not the best one to be whatever position for it, you know? I think it's like four good questions or four or five questions four. that that they resonate with me, but probably many artists were constantly questioning what we're doing and how we're doing it. And if you have to be just really honest with the answer, you know, like you ask the question and be honest. Well, maybe I really want to make that movie or, you know, that takes tenacity or like self editing to allow yourself to do, to hand, you know? Yeah. I I think it's, I'm I'm probably saying this more as a filmmaker, this advice, because filmmaking is a very expensive, um, probably like the most expensive, maybe architecture is actually more expensive, but like for films, like if you're really going to put a lot of time and money and effort into something, you should really consider the gauntlet to know that you're actually pursuing something that will be worth it in the end. Right. So what's next? What are you doing? What's going on next after your graduation, your documentary? I think you're going to put the documentary out in film festivals. Yeah. It'll be out on that circuit. Um, hoping to go to the Rhode Island International Film Festival for the premiere. Um, if that doesn't happen, the next one on our list will be the premiere. We've got we got 62 yeah. on that list. Um, and hopefully we do some good stuff. And it'd be fantastic to get some... Um, distribution partner like the new yorker or new york times opdocs something like that how um, do you do that there's a submission okay. um, thing that you go through but i've had some good feedback some pr- from two professors that have actually said this could be something that mm-hmm. they would see as a new york times opdoc which is super promising for this being like my first like real <laughs> documentary yeah. short there's a lot of momentum right now behind you and your energy is 
uh, infectious or it's like a really it's neat to see a snapshot of where you're at right now awesome thank and where you. you're headed thank you yeah and you're going to france i think right going to france yeah um i keep telling people i'm not going to leave until i'm fluent because why would i go and not become fluent like yeah um and I, i'm gonna be staying with this family that i'll give me some work for the summer and then after that um they said they said that they could um set me up with a friend somewhere who owns a vineyard and i'll make wine for a year um which would be great in a past life i i did i i didn't make wine but i worked like high-end wine beverage retail Mm -hmm. um so i learned a lot about it and i was like oh it'd be so cool to work on a vineyard and actually do it in a very traditional sense and i have an idea for a documentary that takes place at a vineyard in lebanon okay so i'm gonna keep that one close to the chest but uh not not a better place than you know the rhone valley or you know in france somewhere to to learn about it exactly yeah i think I'm fascinated by wine because I I see it as um, a way of communicating with past generations. You know, it's like being um, because the vines are old, right? The the vines are old, but it's it's and it's family owned usually or often. But it is also the history of humanity. I mean, civilizations. I mean, winemaking started in Lebanon like five thousand years ago. Like that is that is the genesis for like what has wine been used for? I forget which. um, I think it was Roman emperor was like every time someone had an idea, he would listen to it when he was drinking wine and listen to it when he was sober. And if he liked it both times and he knew it was a good idea. Um, oh, I think more people should follow that advice now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, especially in Savannah. Well, there's a book that recently came out about, um, about ancient vessels and they, they've gone back and tested to see what, what actually compounds and you know what what was actually in the wine and they went back to ancient greece and um israel and and uh a lot of compounds a lot of um, medicinal and hallucinogenic things that they so it wasn't just wine they infused it in a lot of different things yeah and if you think about how wine was made today it's it's very controlled it's very clean to have as few impurities in there as possible and of course i mean germ theory didn't come out for another couple millennia so um they were making some crazy funky stuff back then there's actually a really cool wine um called malagusia it's a um greek grape that was like resurrected um from ancient ruins they found some of these extinct grape seeds um preserved in a clay pot in some greek ruins and they genetically engineered the grape to come back and you can taste that wine and it's really really unique and of course it's a much cleaner wine than they would have had but that's the type of wine they were drinking in ancient greece wow yeah it's like mud probably back then (laughs) you probably but I, i think that's it's so interesting that wine is this perfect balance of of art and science but also history and um and also a little bit of chance yeah so much there's so many variables that come with it um and they even you could do the same thing year after year but it'll be different because the vintage is different and the growing season the terroir always changes and um so i think the the story that i want to tell in lebanon has to do with um communicating with past generations maybe you know, like I was saying, maybe I'm young and cynical, but I feel like tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. So what's the <laughs> point? But I think that tradition can actually be used to 
when when done right, not just communicate with past generations, but have them communicate back to you too. So the story is about this winemaker who um, went to develop the land that his father left after he died in the Lebanese Civil War. So having no prior knowledge about wine, decides that he's going to go and cultivate the land. And by doing so, it's almost like he's communicating with his dad again, who he lost when he was really young. Wow. That's your... You want to That's my it. angle, yeah. Did you just blow what... You wanted to keep close to your chest? Well, I know, because that's okay. still my story. There's Got it. details about who this guy is. No cool. one needs to know. Right on. Or I'm the water, this guy or this girl. Okay. <laughs> Person. Mm-hmm. Right Person on. of interest. So I guess we talk about music often. I don't know if we want to jump into that water real quick, but... Um, Actually, time is really sensitive. Yeah. Let's um, let's close things up. Sure. So, one of the things that I find interesting about you is that you're inquisitive, and um, the way I met you, I only met you a few days ago, but you were walking down the street and came into the venue where we're currently at, and um, you were alone walking down a street and knocked on a door and made an opportunity for yourself, and that's something that I always respect, and um, because I try to do that. To myself or make open doors and it's scary sometimes because I don't know what's on the other side um, but and oftentimes they, the person or the opportunity on their side it's not ready or it's not the timing yeah. but you have to keep doing it so I appreciate that quality about you thank you I think that comes from the best advice I ever got was my mentor in high school um, really inspiring guy <clears throat> that I have always looked up to um, and you know the odds have been against him for a long time um, and see, I knew him when he was in his early 60s. He died, I think, when he was 65, maybe. Um, but he spent the majority of his life in a motorized wheelchair from a um, an accident uh, on the football field in college. He became a quadriplegic. Um, but that didn't stop him from still coaching and teaching. He was my theology professor in high school and um, was able to really get close to him. And he always had like the right thing to say. He always knew exactly what to say. And he had the most positive attitude despite the life that he was living. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got came from him. And he said, just say yes to things like, unless it's going to kill you, (laughs) like don't say yes to heroin, but like (laughs) say yes to everything. Because if you say, if you don't ask at all, the answer is always no. Um, And when you say yes, you, get introduced to a little bit of conflict. You have to make decisions. And the thing that I've really learned here being a student is how to tell a good story. And stories are only as good as how great their conflicts are. And conflicts come from really tough decisions. And conflicts create character. So if literally you want to be a person of character, you need to make some hard decisions. And you need to say yes to things that will force you to make some tough decisions. Um, And that's when you really change and become who you are. That's so much better than learning about uh, the bands that you might have mentioned. <laughs> that was good advice. Or good. Leave us with some, some words of that. wisdom. I like that. And you can still yeah. go check out the War on Drugs and Pine Grove, the two bands of my high rotation right now. Right on. Um, thank you very much for spending time with us. Hey, I appreciate thank it. you Best so much. For invi- thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to have anybody interviewed or if you have any questions or comments, please hit us up on Instagram at the 10 frame.